Hello and welcome to the third episode of Bear Fruits, a very sporadically occurring podcast about queer literature with a tantalising TV section at the end. We are your ever enthusiastic hosts. I'm Rosie. And I'm Georgie. And we've returned after an extended summer sojourn. I actually don't know how to say that word. Sojourn. In which we were not so much sojourning, but flailing. Yeah. Um, But now we're ready for our next episode, which we're very excited about. It has kind of summery vibes, I think. Um, But firstly, Georgie, how are you? And do you still have any remaining summer vibes? Um, (laughs) I'm good. I am in a very different place to how I was when we did our last episode. Mm. In a way. I mean, I'm good. It's been... It's been a summer, let's say that. It's been a summer. Yeah, it has. But um, how are you? You're looking very hot in both senses. Oh, thanks. I was going <laughs> to... Wow, now I'm blushing. Um, yeah, I actually feel very hot temperature-wise, but thank you for boosting my ego. Um, yeah, I'm okay. Just plodding along with life, I guess. Yeah. Trying my best. We're all doing our best. Yeah. Um, but at least the weather has been great. We both have a bit of a tan... Yeah, we're feeling both very tanned. It's not blistering uh, heat anymore. Yeah, I'm kind of feeling end of summery, mm-hmm. you know? The downhill slope to winter. No, we're not late. Oh my God. No, no. it's like 23 degrees outside. We're fine. It's um, also August still. It's yeah, good. yeah. But um, anyway, this episode, we will be talking about Sterling Carrot Gold by Isabel Widener, which was published with Peninsula Press in 2021. Uh, side note they're a publisher of great books including Weird Fox by Lynn Tillman which I also read recently and would recommend Peninsula Press if you want to send us free books please don't hesitate I think we do this every yeah. every episode well, we're going to be doing a little call out to the publisher going to keep doing it until it <laughs> happens um but to introduce the author and the book Isabel Widener is a writer and senior lecturer in creative writing and performance at Queen Mary University in London and the programmer and presenter of This Isn't a Dream, a fortnightly literary chat show hosted on Instagram Live by the ICA. Their previous novels include Gordy Bauble and We Are Made of Diamond Stuff, and they've also written for Freeze and Granta, amongst others. So, yeah, Sterling Carrot Gold is their most recent novel and also, very deservedly, won the Goldsmiths Prize last year, which is great. Yes, um, the Goldsmiths Awards is like a British literary award and it is awarded annually to a piece of fiction that breaks the mould or extends the possibilities of a novel form which is funny because that's what we're going to be talking about that's exactly <laughs> what we're about to say yeah um so Sterling Carrot Gold is the surreal rollicking and I would say sinister tale of Sterling our young and thoughtful protagonist who whilst living as a performer and a cleaner in contemporary London is manipulated into a series of confrontations with the state. While its wild and very playful narrative is full of spaceships, fantastical costumes, bullfights and queer comradeship, it also offers a very insightful representation of state violence and the criminalisation and control of queer and migrant bodies. And Sterling and their three friends take on the task of refuting the charges brought against Sterling, including killing some animal cuties, which we'll get to later. Um, And the story takes many twists and turns and becomes, in the end, a kind of time-travelling adventure. 
Yeah. Um, this plot could be familiar to some. Well, I mean, I think not through that explanation. No. Of it, but I think if you were to read it, it would, might be familiar because it's also very similar to the premise of uh, Franz Kafka's 1915 novel, The Trial. Um, unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. Well... To me. In what sense? Well, I just read the blurb and it literally says this and then I didn't take that in at all. True, but there are some references to the trial There are inside the novel. There are. But yeah, I know what you mean. I haven't also read the trial, so I... I mean, I have and I still didn't notice. Mm, okay, so, so it's subtle. <laughs> well, is it? I don't know. While Widener has updated it for a present day UK context, it includes some scenes that are verbatim the events that unfold in the trial. And then I'm just saying there are some scenes. It's not the whole book. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it has its own narrative. Except at the end where there is a twist, which we'll get to a bit later. So this makes Sterling Carrot Gold a kind of fan fiction as much of the original novel has been rewritten and abstracted. That said, I think it goes against Widener's intentions to try to define this book genre-wise and to do so according to conventional genre definitions would potentially be impossible anyhow as it folds sci-fi surrealism art criticism queer working class football histories and more all into the novel form and i was reading the introduction to the anthology liberating the canon that widener edited back in 2018 and they talk about genre categories being reductive as they stagnate opportunities for literary experimentalism and innovation obviously but also that those categories are underpinned by really classist and patriarchal ideas about what constitutes quote-unquote high and low culture. The term genre-defying really bugs me to no end, but it's very much part of Widener's project, so to speak, to evade categorization and also to reinvent or at least expand what we might call the novel form. Yeah, this book is so uh, densely woven with references and also has a wonderfully idiosyncratic tone. So while we'll be talking about various themes, we're also going to be unpacking the ways the language Widener uses enacts meaning making and plays with what is meaningful. So in a way, it actually reminds me of what we talked about last episode with regard to the methods of new narrative and Camille Roy's essay on writing, which is in Honey Mine at the back. And I have a quote of hers here, which we also used last time, but I think it's useful to bring up in this context. And in this quote, Roy says that what new narrative writing did was, quote, tell, tell, tell without the cheap obscurantism of showing. And I think that's very much what Widener indulges in, the telling. Yes, good point. And there's a tendency for new narrative writers to mash literary and disciplinary forms which is also central to Widener's work. I definitely think that Widener is actively contributing to the NN archive. But yeah, as I think it will become clear for listeners who haven't read it yet, this novel is a trip. And I mean that in both terms of the plot as well as the actual reading experience because Widener has loaded it with references and motifs that recur and expand throughout the novel. So we will try to make sense of some of this in the episode. But it's just a really, really smart book. And I admit that it took me until my second read to realise just how smart it was. Is. It's still smart. Ongoing. smart. It's still smart. smart. <laughs> um, so many references and breadcrumbs are folded into it that I missed on my first read. Many of the references and names 
Widener brings into the novel are living avant-garde UK writers and artists and academics, which I think illustrates very well how this book has really been written by and for an existing queer audience and subculture. Because writing these figures into the novel is a very generous way of situating it among other bodies of work in this moment. It makes it feel intentionally collective and relational and does not set itself apart from its readers and other writers and cultural phenomena like lots of literature and works of art do 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 what they do do yeah <laughs> yeah it makes me aware of how I mean I guess I'm already aware of this but it's like whilst reading it I was aware of how the traditional novel form is so often legitimized by a particular like reflective in quote marks tone or perspective which is bound up with authorly authority as somehow separate from a readerly knowledge of the world a kind mm. of I will bestow knowledge upon you yeah type thing which of course has patriarchal and colonial roots and I think this book really challenges that history yeah reading it is instead an experience of living in itself does that make sense it's like you're not being told something you're experiencing something yes yeah 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 Yeah. um but yes we should start with a reading to set us off mm-hmm. um which i can do mm-hmm. this is it. from the start of the novel the very beginning and it gives a great sense of sterling and their life i think i'm sterling lost my father to aids my mother to alcoholism lost my country to conservatism my language to ptsd Got this England, though. Got this body, this sterling heart. Today, I'm in a white football shirt wrapped around my waist like a skirt. Red velvet bullfighter jacket on and black Montero, traditional bullfighter hat. Yellow football socks, black leather loafers. Outside my flat on Delancey Street, Camden Town, six, seven actual bullfighters walk up, hustling me. Huh, they say. I keep my head down. Focus on loafers, familiar tarmac. Again, huh. Guttural call bullfighters use to get the fighting bull's attention. Still, head down, I keep walking. They follow. One Torero waves a pink gold capote, a bullfighting cape. Pink gold, pink, gold. Pink, pink, gold, pink, gold. I lose my bearings. The bullfighters push me via Arlington Road into Mary Terrace, off the main road. Feel kicked around like a football. My father, Franz Beckenbauer, played for Birthtown FC. He used to carry my sister in one arm, myself in the other, practising kick-ups. I lost him to penalty shootouts and my sister to international migration. I lost my mother to bankruptcy. Lost the ball. Won it back. Threefields Estate surrounds Mary Terrace. Windows like the eyes of so many emotional children. On the sixth floor of Fairfield House, one window is open. Distinct blue and white Karlsruhe SC poster on the wall. Bundesliga. Down here, pink and gold. I charge wildly. The bullfighters flick their capotes away, gaining critical insights into my defensive behaviour. Picador on horseback comes at me with a bullfighting lance. Picador is one of a pair of horsemen in a traditional bullfight who jabs the bull with a lance, and also a British publishing house. The cute horse wears no peto, a mattress-like protective padding, standard since the late 1920s at least. Instinctively, I flex my horns. I attack, hitting the horse's flank. Horse goes down. The dismounted picador retreats quickly. Out of action, he goes to perch on the manual barrier that closes the estate to through traffic. 
a second picador on another equally unprotected horse comes at me. He lances me just behind the Murillo. Is it my fault? Did I elicit the violence or did I just fail to prevent it from happening? My jacket, too much, not enough, the football socks. I knew a gay who looked straight like a Gap advert, got hassle still. Big girl's blouse written all over his unisex t-shirt. This scene really sets the stage because it determines the events that shape Sterling's life for the rest of the novel. And it gives sense of the tangible feeling you have when reading of contemporary London and its streets and the area that Sterling lives in and how this sits alongside the more surreal events that play out. Yeah. um, The fact that this conflict is portrayed as a bullfight is actually pretty crucial as well because metaphorically speaking because in a bullfight even though the bull is framed as this beastly aggressor obviously is taunted by the picador the entire event is staged the outcome is rigged and the bull is always killed so even if the picador fails in the actual fight the bull is killed out the back after as is tradition So from the get-go, it is made very clear that the terms on which this incident is figured are rigged against Sterling. We'll talk about this some more, I think, but Widener's writing is just so enjoyable to read because it is laden with this really very rich imagery. And rather than using metaphor to illustrate the point, Widener flips it on his head and the metaphor becomes the literal story. But I'm interested in this tactic. Perhaps we could call it even a methodology because I think what it produces is both fear as in the fear of what you think isn't possible becoming real which for Sterling is the extent of unregulated state control but also hope as in what you think isn't possible becoming real so the way that Sterling's imagination and courage become the key to undermining and refusing their persecution (laughs) does that make sense yeah These metaphors, by metamorphosing into real events, take on a very different kind of significance because Widener has them play out in their entirety rather than remaining just a transient image. Yeah, but maybe we should um, very quickly introduce the characters because I think it's a quite complicated, complex book. So we have Sterling Beckenbauer, who is our protagonist, um, who we've already introduced. Um, what do we need to say about Sterling? They are a young, young queer. non-binary migrant from Germany living in London. Uh, actually, we don't know how old they are. No. It's never indicated. So there's Sterling's best friend and artistic collaborator, Chachki Smog. Such a great name. It's, it's really hard name. to say. Chachki. Chachki Smog. Um, and they're described as a big white faggot brutal looking with a strong love for their mother they're also they also are a costume designer and they are fashion designer fashion designer well i guess they're studying fashion they're studying at csm and they, yeah and they design clothes for the Theater. performance event series that sterling and chachki run together yeah um there's ellison colescott who also happens to be the horseman who appears in the <laughs> yeah this makes no sense but yeah. yeah he also happens to be a horse a horseman who appears in an artwork by robert h colescott um that's going to be confusing for people but yeah but it will become clear it later become clear. well maybe well, it won't no, it doesn't matter just read the book um <laughs> and finally there's rodney fadel yeah 
just checking that you also pronounce it the same way. Yeah. Um, who is described as the dishy as fuck love interest of Sterling, who also serves as a key witness to the bull, bullfight. And both Ellison and Rodney join Chachki and Sterling in refuting the charges brought against Sterling. Um, but then also the story develops and they become quite like key, like they become kind of central main characters in their own way because once yeah. Sterling's sort of case is dealt with, it then kind of focuses on Rodney and Ellison a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's also worth mentioning Cataclysmic Foibles, which is the name of the sort of legendary performance event series that Chachki and Sterling put on together. And it plays quite an essential role in the development of the plot as a setting where key moments take place, but also in representing queer community and organizing and allyship. Yeah, and enjoyment. And enjoyment and fun. Yeah. Um, Other key characters are Soft O and Pinky, the two police-like authority figures who act on behalf of the state and try to arrest Sterling and pretty much hound them continuously throughout the book. But... Yeah, there's obviously also, not obviously, there's also the kind of outer web of characters, both fictional and non-fictional, who make up the cast. But I'd like to talk a bit about the way Widener uses real people, specifically footballers, as characters. The first is, as we've mentioned, Franz Beckenbauer, a celebrated German professional footballer turned manager, who features as Sterling's dad, and another, Justin Fashionu, who was the first professional England footballer to come out as gay, and I actually think still the first professional footballer yeah. in the world. Oh, I don't know about that. Okay. In the UK. Maybe. Um, and Justin Fashionu, who was the first professional England footballer to come out as gay. And still, I think, the only one. Potentially, yeah. And he features as Franz's boyfriend. And Widener said that using Beckenbauer allowed them to take aspects from their own life. Their dad was a footballer of a similar age to Beckenbauer or around the same time in the 70s and to use a cultural figure to bring in a part of the history of racism and homophobia via football or as it features in football and fashion operates as a kind of beacon of hope for sterling Mm. it's like a a wannabe well a kind of hoped for gay stepdad figure who might take them under their wing even though he in both real life and as part of the story is no longer alive it's kind of ghostly figure in a way then Mm-hmm. kind of haunts Sterling in a sense very much but um here's a section of Sterling talking about Fashionu because he's actually the subject of a whole chapter mm-hmm. do you want to read this bit yep okay maybe I'll also start with the title of the chapter which is my father's lover was never the stepdad I wanted him to be well it says everything really doesn't it yeah yeah what a goal goal of the season Justin Fashionu we want you we love you the way you volleyed it in with your left foot from well outside the box, the way you spun around and slipped it between the goalkeeper's hand and the right post, the fans wanted you. Norwich City FC did. Your teammates jumped you like only footballs playing on the exact same team jump each other when one of them scores. Justin Fashionu, we wanted you when you became the first black British player to sign for one million to Nottingham Forest in 1980. We wanted you then, but we didn't want you in the, the late 90s when you hanged yourself in a garage in Shoreditch Fairchild Place, after what would have been your final visit to Chariot's Roman Spa, the local gay sauna across the road, which personally I never attended, and it's not like I didn't try or didn't collect chachki from Chariot's on many occasions. I remember a time 
around one or two when I literally lived outside Charit's in a small fenced-off car park by the main entrance. The entrance was flanked by fake Roman columns and plastic statues of lions, its roof a triangular awning with old English lettering, which all felt strangely reassuring given I owned nothing but the trackies I was wearing in a fanny pack containing my passport, a kitchen knife and a can of pepper spray I found on the floor. Just in fashion new, I admit that I wanted you to be my stepdad, that I, aged 17, had come to Chariot's Roman Spa, if not the UK, in 01, looking for you, and that I waited outside with the lions expecting you to appear from under the awning, triangular, hair still wet, refreshed and affirmed in your gayness at any moment. I'd worked hard to forget what you did in the, in the garage on Fairfield four years prior, but really I knew, I knew that you wouldn't appear and that although I was still underage in 01, I was already too late by far. Whoa, good job. There aren't many s- full stops. No. So that was probably like three sentences I just read out loud. Um, Nicely done. Mm. I like this section because of the way Widener folds in a history of football in the UK and its complicity with homophobia, as well as telling us more about Sterling and the way they met Chachki and their design to find Fashionu and to be connected to him somehow. It just reads like a kind of fan biography. Yeah, it feels like a tribute piece or some kind of obituary or something. Sterling's take of, yeah. an, obitu- of an obituary. Um, but for context, Justin Fashionu committed suicide in 1998 after he was accused of sexual assault by a 17-year-old in Maryland where homosexual acts were still illegal. Um, and Fashionu denied the allegations but knew that he was presumed guilty but this was long after he publicly came out as gay. Um, he received a lot of homophobic and racist treatment from the media, his own brother, football clubs, everything, you name it. And as a result, Fashionu is a really misunderstood figure because his whole career and his memory is tarnished by this uh, accusation. But ultimately his death was still a tragedy and so it feels really significant that Widener honours him in, well, Sterling, Sterling. Yeah. Widener via Sterling honours him in this way because they write Sterling into the narrative as an adoring fan who tells Fashion News story in a much more admiring light, I guess. It's not even admiring. It's, it's admiring. just it's like st- stating the facts. Really. It's stating the facts, but it still has... They're still idolizing Fashionu. Yeah, there's a kind extent. of longing because, yeah. as the chapter's called. And this way, you know, I do think that in this chapter, Fashionu is positioned more as, a, or remembering him as an excellent footballer and a kind of icon. I don't think anyone would refer to Fashionu that way. Not not because of the fact but that he's also gay. because of the way that his football career kind of plummeted after he came out. Yeah, as gay, he's had a really unfair treatment I guess had a rough time of it yeah yeah also just as a side note I wanted to bring up the Justin campaign which you told me about Mm -hmm. Georgie which the writer Juliet Jakes founded in 2008 and she started it 10 years after his death to draw attention to and combat homophobia in football and Jakes has written a lot about football including fashion and his tumultuous career and you can find it all on her website if you want more because writing about football sexuality and gender is pretty hard to find I think but going back to this fan-like tone, um, 
and how it functions. I found a quote from an interview with Widener in The Guardian where they say, one of the things I like to do in my fiction is to produce tension and energy from working across different registers without smoothing over the differences between them. And this method is so alive in this section, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. It's also full of uh, the queer desire to connect to previous generations, to have touch points or points of contact. And it's suffused with this very recognisable feeling of longing towards queer cultural figures and this need for them to be or represent something significant um, or to remain good and uncomplicated because there's not many places to look, I guess. But what I'm interested in is that this folding of registers isn't subtle and it's really not trying to be. And I've been trying to find a good way to describe it. And I guess I think it's a kind of deft and rich and generous way of writing a way that offers up a particularly imaginative space that I think is hard to find in a lot of writing that tries to like smooth over the cracks somehow or like smooth over the the pulling together of things so you don't notice whereas Widener's very obviously saying like I'm taking this from here yeah and I'm taking this from here and if you put them together what happens but I, I guess I'm just constantly kind of surprised and overjoyed by the writing because it's doing so much and it doesn't punch down to its audience because it knows we can keep up. It's kind of complex and playful simultaneously and gives us space to think about, particularly this section gives us space to think about why Sterling might need this figure of fashion to hold on to, as well as the kind of historical and social context for the story. Yeah, I think this also plays out and this being Sterling's longing for connection and a sense of ancestral or familial belonging um in the character of Franz Beckenbauer who as you mentioned is a pro footballer from Germany but in the novel is named by Sterling as their father who abandoned Sterling and their mum 17 years ago and the trauma or like effects of this abandonment and the hole that this figure left in Sterling's life is really palpable throughout um, and I think the surreal tone of the novel really supports this feeling because France constantly shows up throughout the novel on the street and the places that Sterling resides in quite a dreamlike way, very much in the way someone you've been thinking about a lot might show up in your dreams. Um, and there's something really heartbreaking about this because it's so clear how heavy this absence weighs on Sterling. And like this rejection has created a kind of obsession an obsession to be seen and perhaps accepted and that's why I think they always think that he's around the corner this like obsessive kind of fixation on mm. on France but then it culminates in this scene at this kebab shop where Sterling and, Ch- and Rodney are together and the on scene- a date on a date they're yeah that's together, they're, they're not just hanging out they're on a date yeah. there's a romance in this novel even though it's Comes very a bit late for me it's also very much in the in the background yeah, it's like a way for the plot to progress yeah. rather than... Yeah. But anyway, um, the scene happens twice and I'm not going to explain, but it's because of time travel. <laughs> Which we're just like not going to talk about. No, we're not really going to talk about it. Well, a little bit. Um, but the events differ. And on the first occasion, Sterling manages to speak to him. Um, but France is very dismissive and doesn't recognise them. And the second time, France starts yelling homophobic slurs and verbally assaulting uh, Rodney and Sterling 
So the veil is suddenly lifted and France is shown for who he really is, which is one of these really awful, complicated figures who we both seem to idolise and seek validation from, but are actually just awful people. Um, I think many queer people will recognise that complicated tug of wanting to be accepted by a homophobic or bigoted family member. And I'm not entirely sure why this happens twice. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. Yeah. I really don't know. I think, well, I mean, the time traveling aspect of this novel mostly serves, or at least in my interpretation of it, um, it kind of serves as a tool for Sterling and their cohort to sort of rewrite aspects or like, um, yeah, I guess rewrite aspects of the past to save themselves from all the injustice done and also to sort of save themselves from the charges. Mm -hmm. But in this instance, on both occasions, France is just a brute. So maybe it just signals something, some crushing truth that not even a time traveling superpower can remove someone's bigotry. Yeah, I guess. I guess it can't. <laughs> some people just can't hard get better. To learn. Yeah, even even if you keep revisiting them. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I found interesting about this repeated scene is that in the first date, Sterling is talking about how Franz looks different. And how he replies to Sterling's accusations with a, quote, unfamiliar, unbavarian accent. And then Sterling says, quote, what's with the long blonde ponytail and the Oxfam outfit? Dad, you have changed. There's mm. like a sense of unreality to the interaction, as if Sterling just needed to play something out. So to accost him and challenge him about his behavior. But he isn't alive. So they just like picked some random guy in a kebab shop. It's like the need to resolve something is played out whether and it doesn't really matter if it's really with France or not like he doesn't need to be real and we don't need to know if he's real or not no that's not the important yeah it's like closure or something but then it's also not really closure not closure maybe but it makes me think of that therapy method I feel like we talk about therapy every episode (laughs) uh what is it called some it's like a German word gestalt 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 is that where you reenact situations yeah like it's like theater yeah so you are talking to basically a chair but imagining Mm. that they are a family member or someone you have past uh conflicts conflicts to reckon with i don't know yeah So we also wanted to talk about the imagery in the book because the characters' clothes and their surroundings and the particular visual references Widener uses um, feel like such an important and exciting part of it. Mm-hmm. From yes. Yeah, it really ranges from the Beach Boys to Hieronymus Bosch paintings to Renaissance paintings and contemporary queer writers and artists. Um, and Widener takes us all over the place. But it just took me a long time to realise the significance of all these references because I think when you first encounter them, they can seem kind of generally related to the content. Um, but they're often actually, or mostly just woven into the whole fabric of the novel. They kind of recur in different places and have uh, take up particular meaning or and they take up meaning in a specific way. I guess the trial is a good example of this. The trial being... 
Franz Kafka's The Trial. Didn't we already talk about this? No, no, we did, but just oh yeah, to not specify. oh yeah, not the trial in the novel. Yeah, the book, the trial. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think especially perhaps for me the references to London and the other places they visit in the UK, it's so culturally specific in a way that, like I was saying earlier, makes the book feel written for a very specific kind of reader. Um, someone who would really recognise the references, I to, Lon- mean. references yeah. to London or like British yeah. um, culture in a way. Yeah. Do um, you recognise the references to London? There's lots of street names. Having grown up there. Yes. Yes. Lots of street names. And I don't know, they were just like places. But um, that said, it doesn't really matter if you miss some of those more subtle references because there's so much else going on. And Widener has invested a lot of time in describing everything so the visual is there anyway. But in naming the street names and the places makes the visual component all the more lucid and hyper real. So contrasted with the more unusual references to the existing artworks, it really kind of enhances their point and their point being. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, The experience of living in the UK today and the government's very real and pernicious treatment of its citizens, but especially queer migrant working class bodies is bordering on absurd. And I think that feeling is captured really well by Widener with that contrast between the hyper real and then the surreal unreal moments Mm -hmm. you're really rooted in a contemporary reality but then it's like extremely heightened you're highly aware that we're talking about a current contemporary moment yeah but then Mm. but then because it's led with this surrealism the feeling of the absurdity is almost identical to the real experience of living in the UK right now and maybe this is a nice example actually in the third chapter of the book called hard feelings one reference appears in a particularly lucid way I think where pinky and soft o so the police authority like figures try to set up sterling yet again while sterling's at a football game where they've gone to look for rodney to ask them to be a witness in their trial and pinky and soft o Escort Sterling from the football game and take them to a field that seems unusual and fantastical to Sterling compared to the regular football field. And they demand that Sterling performs a dribbling challenge, which in itself is kind of confusing and counterintuitive somehow. Um, And this field turns out to be the same field that's shown on the cover of the Beach Boys 1967 album, Smiley Smile, which Widener talks about a bit earlier in the novel, kind of without context as well, actually. Quote, with its unnaturally high grass, mint green leaves and light blue botanicals, Hendon's backcountry feels strangely familiar. So to Sterling it feels familiar because they've seen the album cover somewhere and to us it feels familiar because Widener's actually described it in exactly the same way like 20 pages before when talking about this album cover. And it's, yeah, I guess it's an unexpected reference maybe and its relevance is not immediately clear. But Georgie, yes. It's never really that clear, but I do feel... I haven't written this down anywhere on our notes, but... Um, Tell what, me <laughs> what you feel. <laughs> we we haven't gone into like the history of the Smiley Smile album cover and mm-hmm. what happened with the Beach Boys, Boys at this time, but um, Brian Wilson had a... I think they he had a, like a mental breakdown 
and he had a series he went he had like a series of like hallucinations and he kind of went into psychosis mm. and there's something about brian's loss of grip on reality that i feel heavily parallels with sterling's own experience of living mm. in this moment that i feel that maybe there's like some relationship there that like widener kind of empathizes with brian wilson or like i don't know mm. i don't know if that's true but i wonder why they mentioned that yeah. or why why it's brought up yeah it's not just that the album cover is used but it's also that the context of the context is really is like addressed and and written about by widener honestly reading this book was a bit confronting for me at times because i was compulsively going like why about everything why and i think the answer to that why was often because widener wanted to include it or say something about something Mm. but to just clarify you weren't like but why is the plot going this way yeah more like but why is this important to the plot yeah and i don't mean to like undermine or underestimate the thought or like what widener's intentions were because i think or are because i think that actually there is lots of intention and deliberate Mm. placement of things but what i mean was it was this very or it was this very freeing for me the moment i realized that i didn't need no actually maybe what i mean is that not picking up on the function of certain references won't Mm. limit your ability to get enjoyment out of the story and i think you're kind of meant to be confused well you are meant to be confused that feeling of of being wrong-footed that like sense of Mm. complete like bewilderment is very much intentional when it's also paired with very deliberate explication like the chapter names Maybe I'll just read a couple. The past is hands down preferable to the present I came from. Or where's the trial one? The Garden of Earthly Delights is a detention centre near Margate. I mean, they're really like, I'm connecting things for you. So you feel wrong footed, but you're also taken by the hand somehow, which adds to that feeling, I guess. Yeah, it's not completely shielded from you. It's just that you're meant to feel yeah, a bit it's like... obscure. But yeah, and in in the field with the thick high grasses, the uh, mint green leaves and like light blue botanicals, there are these uh, so-called animal cuties, which I think are also taken from the album cover. Mm -hmm. They're just basically tiny cute animals that Sterling accidentally squashes and kills whilst they're dribbling. I think everyone who's listening right now should be looking up the album cover. Yeah. I'm looking up myself. you can see the cuties. It's the Smiley Smile album. Um, there's a kind of purveying sense of gaslighting throughout the whole novel. The animal cuties in particular feel like a reference to state violence undercover. They're not like they themselves are not um, after Sterling. But their cuteness is like another symbol for Sterling's badness in opposition to them. Like killing tiny cute animals oh, yeah, makes true. you bad true you know yeah and then sterling feels very guilty about it and ashamed but they were like placed it was again a rigged a rigged game but this drew my attention to the way that the total upheaval of sterling's life and their this kind of consequent questioning of themselves is considered a desirable outcome for those criminalizing them 
because this upheaval makes it all the more difficult for them to resist this criminalization because they're constantly wondering what's real and what isn't real and what they did and what they didn't do. But Widener lets Sterling's suffering run alongside their creativity, which turns out to drive the kind of unexpected revenge plot that appears at the end of the novel. So it's not to say that suffering needs to render itself optimistic somehow or produce creative resistance, but it is hopeful and empowering to read about it functioning in that way. Yeah, the fact that a lot of the clothing worn by the characters and described in the novel are actually costume pieces made by Chachki, um, it adds to that sense of uncertainty about what is real and what is not. Widener goes into such detail describing items and naming the brands that really situate the characters in a particular contemporary moment. And these vivid descriptions of these outlandish outfits really elevate the feeling that the whole story is or could potentially be some kind of immersive theater but like a kind of spoof like version as though the story has been put through like a cartoon generator or something yeah and sterling's trial becomes a particular place of convergence for so much visual material Mm. and i think this is in part because it's both a trial in the traditional sense and a cataclysmic foibles event. So like basically Sterling's trial, basically Sterling's trial happens as part of a cataclysmic foibles event. So they can invite their audience to watch this spectacle, which is also determined by the state or the judge or. Yeah, yeah. it's out there. It's out there. And it's so, uh, yeah, and the, the, so then Consequently, the trial and this cataclysmic foibles event becomes juridical proceedings situated as performance art, or like within performance art. But for this chapter, Widener ripped the judge or his dishonour, as he is so magnificently named, and his surroundings from the third panel in Bosch's painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, or in Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights triptych that illustrates hell which I'm going to read the description of, not of the painting of the judge from the novel, so you get a picture because it's a real treat. Mm -hmm. At the head of the courtroom, the judge's high chair, half throne, half toilet, it's set up above a perfectly circular hole in my floor, which, it seems, is becoming a popular aesthetic in Margate and London alike. A person under the high chair, a court reporter... Cacks yellow pellets into the hole. Another person pisses into same, sanitation being a key issue in the courtroom today. On top of the chair sits the judge, a tall, blue-bodied frog, spindly with the head of a fledgling bird. A rose-coloured sash wraps around his lap, then drapes onto the floor in front of him. On his head, a cauldron as a hat. His dishonour is employing his two-digit claw to shove a naked human with clothes fr- with crows flying out of their bottom, head first into his open bill. What is it with the not chewing? From the underside of the throne toilet, two previously ingested humans re-emerge intact and drop down the hole. Is this a 15th century hellscape? No. This is cataclysmic foibles numero 40 and my day in court. The authorities took control of the set design as there's a protocol to be observed, apparently. Love it. Yeah, it's a lot. A picture. I feel like everyone can see the Bosch painting now, no? 
Like well, I, 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 but I didn't know it was a reference to that. And I was really like, whoa, okay, I got to get on board with this new turn of events. When I first read it, I also wasn't 100% sure that it was a Bosch mm. reference, but it came to me quite quickly. But I really enjoyed this lifting of imagery from one form to another. It's an interesting place from which to think about cultural legacy and legibility and the ways that meaning shifts over time. Because here, Widener's scene of the courtroom appropriates and repurposes a cultural object in service of the story. And Widener takes what they need to render a very specific dystopian hellscape of modern Britain. Um, Whether that's from a Bosch painting or an outfit from the Fantastic Toils Instagram page, which I found out because I read the list of references at the back, which is also nice because you can kind of trace... I'm going to check it out. I cannot remember if we've already said this, but um, the fact that Widener is so transparent about their influences and references is very pleasing to me to pretend that all literature and works of art are not in conversation with previous works, whether you want to admit it or not, is bullshit. So I appreciate that Widener offers them up so flagrantly and gives them space to shape major aspects of the plot yeah it's very interesting that the novel ends with the cataclysmic foibles event which is as you just said rosie a live reenactment of sterling's trial with the judge playing the role of the judge as he demanded there's two cataclysmic foibles events the first one is combined with sterling's trial and the last one which comes at the end of the book is has the judge playing a character in it so he's involved in both but they're two separate things and you're now talking about the second one talking about the second one the end the final climax of the novel i'm not going to say explicitly what happens but i'll just say that the performance becomes the site of a revenge fantasy but yeah the fact that sterling and co take their revenge through the guise of an art performance feels really meaningful just because it's such a crucial part of their lives with regards to like queer community and allyship and here it gives them so much extra leverage by luring the judge into their hands so it just plays this very like critical role as well Mm. as just being the most important thing I think also just like art practices are so I don't know not given credit or the time of day time of day and it's just nice that it's so central Mm. um but I think like the whole I feel like the whole way through the novel Widener's testing our willingness to suspend disbelief and just like sterling who isn't sure what's real and what's not we aren't really sure either the imagery and the metaphors and the performances tucked into the stories and they're all too tightly woven to separate what's what um so there's this moment again i'm not gonna (laughs) i don't know how to say this without giving away like the end of the novel but Mm. um they're performing and there's a moment that I guess Sterling and Chachki they take a step out of the performance and into reality I guess yeah it's like action rather than theater yeah although I it's still don't want to really draw anyway that's a different conversation yeah um and so we have the judge who or maybe it's just dawning on him that the performance is no longer and they're really just I don't know how to say that. <laughs> it just gets a bit real. It gets real. That's exactly what it is. It gets real. <laughs> it gets a bit real. 
And so here's Sterling. Here's a little quote with Sterling um, talking about the judge. Is this the moment he lets himself in for? What it means for him to give up control, even if temporarily and in the context of an artistic performance? What it's like to live on someone else's terms in someone else's violent fiction? And the term violent fiction is such a perfect way of describing Sterling's own experience throughout the novel since they were attacked at the very beginning. And also, I guess, all of Sterling's gang. Mm. They've all survived a series of very violent fictions that were crafted by the British government. But in this scenario, Sterling and Chachki finally beat the government at its own game by weaponizing the same methods used by the state. And by that, I mean deception disguised as tradition against the judge. What do you mean by tradition? So the tradition part, so they say, oh, actually, maybe I'll just find the quote. Mm, yeah. So this is about the bullfights. And they say um, they use tradition and fanfare to remove the need for accountability and even discretion. So it's like the tradition of a bullfight mm. is, yeah, got even it. though it's like inhumane, they use that to justify yeah. something. And here I'm just maybe drawing a parallel, which might not be there, but through a performance, there's like a process, mm. but they deceive the judge through the, this through the performance. Yeah which I read as like a, some kind of tradition. But it has the same, I mean, it has the same form as a tradition in that it's a repeated event Yeah. that like signal something specific. Yeah. Great. But we also have to talk about the intricacy of the writing, the prose, because it's really incredible. Widener moves so deftly from one thought to one concept to the next. Um, and it's characterized by, as we've said many times, its references, but also colloquialisms and wordplay and the way it plays with temporality and returns to images and thoughts. And I thought it would be fun to, I'm actually, I said, I was gonna say close read, not really close reading it, but just think about a particular passage with this in mind. So I'm just gonna read a bit from chapter four. My father's lover was never the stepdad I wanted him to be, also known as the Justin Fashionu section. And it starts with the same, uh, it starts with the same phrase but fear not, we are not reading the same part again. This is a mere example of the repetition we were talking about. What a goal that was, metaphorically speaking, the goal of the season. I didn't just take the job as a cleaner in the small 1960s office block corner Albert Street in Delancey. I also rented the shell of a top floor flat that came with it and started having a life, developing a big British heart and soon with Chachki cataclysmic foibles. Everything meant something then. Take cataclysmic foibles, the name, which referred to a state of precarity in which any foible, character flaw, or momentary slip-up can and will have cataclysmic personal consequences. Imagine, e.g., that all you did was walk down Delancey Street, white football shirt wrapped around your waist like a skirt, red velvet bullfighter jacket on, and black Montera, traditional bullfighter hat, that you had yellow football socks on, black leather loafers, and that's all it took for everything to go wrong. That's what years ago we somewhat childishly, imprecisely, liberally even, called a cataclysmic foible. The fact that you wore that stuff, the skirt in particular, 
the fact it was never actually about your clothes but always about you and that if you hadn't worn this or that skirt or those socks you would have had the exact same thing coming the kind of thing Justin fashion knew that doesn't happen to everybody but that happened to us Justin and to you a lot that's why we developed a language around it we were kids didn't care for the precise or even correct use of words we still don't we care for their capacity to give life and to take it away as well as being integral to the pastel dragons design concept the foam rubber spikes on Chachki's beige puffer vest in case you were wondering constitute an example of what years ago we described as a foible something that catches that you may get caught up in the bent dragon's tail with the feather as its tip doing similar symbolic work, see? And this section takes me back to the Camille Roy quote I picked up earlier about telling versus the cheap obscurantism of showing, because this is all tell, tell, tell. But I love this sentence, the bit about the foam rubber spikes constitute an example of what years ago we described as a foible, something that catches, something you might get caught up in. But this vest turns out to be, this puffer vest turns out to be such a vital tool in the revenge fantasy because the spikes, the foam spikes on the back of it, slot into the spaceship and change its mode of operating so that Sterling can time travel with no restrictions, as was previously the case. And the vest was made by Chachki, who saw it on Sterling when they time traveled to visit them as a young child. So we kind of come full circle. And just a fun fact. The image of the spaceship originates from the painting The Crucifixion of Christ by Anonymous from 1350. This is a lot of explication, but I think it gives you a good idea of the density and complexity of the text. And look up the painting because you can see a tiny, what seems to be spaceship in the top left-hand corner. It's very beautiful. The spaceship is extremely cute, actually. It really is, it yeah. Like a little... Also the person in the spaceship. Actually, it looks a bit like well, I was going to say sperm, but... Oh, no, it's a bit spiky. No, it's spiky. All it's dynamic. very cute. Um, yeah, and yeah, I guess before we end, I have to add one thing that we haven't talked about, which is humour. Mm. Because despite the fact that the book is set in this very hostile and oppressive country um <laughs> the country from which we originate that we call the uk the novel is deliberately very fun and funny and there's something really satisfying about taking the piss out of all the worst aspects of post-brexit Tory uk which i think is what this book does really well and even just like minor details i mean we said this but the judge being called his dishonor it has this like devilish quality to it mm, that I find. Devilish. That's such a good word. Yeah. It's cheeky. Yeah. And it's just very pleasing and gratifying to read. This satirical take on the conditions of life in the UK is one way that humour is used. But there is also another kind of humour that plays out in the wordplay and in between the characters themselves. And I can't really explain it because I haven't really talked about how humour works even though i love humor but um hot take georgie loves humor <laughs> i love humor right. i love being funny um you are funny i know <laughs> um <laughs> but all the characters have a sense of humor and their reactions to the unfolding events are very comical and i think that's 
kind of due to the intimacy of the friendship between Chachki and Sterling, mm. which kind of enhances that. And also over time with Rodney and Ellison, because they kind of mock each other and take the piss out of each other in a way that only really old friends can do. And it's really endearing. Um, and I just think Widener has mastered that tone really well. But this is maybe not humour so much. It's more just like the tone of the novel that is... Mm. It's also just good dialogue. It's very good dialogue. It doesn't fall flat ever. Like even when... No, I mean, it keeps up such a pace yeah. the whole way through. But uh, Rosie, you rightly pointed out to me that satire is considered one of the highest forms of comedy. But I still feel like... Well, like a... it's the only one revered in literary circles, yeah. you know? But there's also a kind of a lot of snobbery around this kind of humor i mean there's satire in a sense it's like a satirical take of mm. modern day britain but then there's also this other kind of humor that i don't know the comedic timing is good like mm. the way that the characters respond to events and just their relationships are really beautiful actually but this does play a role so humor does play a role and it's also very deliberate by widener because they talk about it being sort of serving as a survival strategy. And I read a quote somewhere and they said that humour is not at all a shallow register or whatever, but quite the opposite. It's actually a very important mode of survival for many of us. I think that's really... Here, here. Yeah. We all need it. A little bit of a laugh. Yeah. Every now and then. You got a joke for us, Georgie? Um, Although I would say your form is more wit. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't have jokes under my sleeve spontaneous <laughs> wit okay so now for the fun part tv yeah well not the fun part the bit that we both wait for and that we do not do a second of preparation for or research or research or anything this is purely ad-libbing purely unplanned pleasure pleasure (laughs) (laughs) so tv corner episode three tv corner this time we will be talking about love island 2022 british love Love island british love island 2022 clear rosie yeah um my question for you oh yeah Unless I can't be asked to introduce anything. Well, it's this year's Love Island. It finished like, what, a month ago? Almost a month ago now. So this is not even even close to being relevant to anyone. It's not a hot topic. (laughs) It's purely for us. I know, but we were supposed to record this. Yeah, anyway. Don't, it doesn't matter. Um, So sorry, guys, for bringing this back to your attention. Because I think everyone, when it finishes, everyone just forgets about it. But we're bringing it back. Um, Rosie. Are you happy with the winners of oh. this year's Love Island? Well, let me just preface this by saying that I have never watched Love Island from start to finish in my life. This year was the first time I watched every episode mm-hmm. apart from the best bits because who watches that? Do you watch that? I didn't this year, but I do think it... Because obviously the, the main episodes of the week 
they're so like plot driven actually you're right i did watch like 10 minutes of one and they were making stupid jokes and being silly and that was very nice yeah you can see you can see the relationships in a more like organic way or like authentic way rather than the main ones which are really just like driving forward plot and i learned about the yellow bean bag the curse of the yellow bean bag oh i didn't watch did you watch that no oh well they all think that if you sit on the yellow bean bag it brings you bad luck and so no one would sit on the yellow bean bag and if anyone sat on it they'd all be like (gasps) no and then they did a really cute ritual i don't know who it was i think it was like ekansu of course it was ekansu yeah ekansu obviously led this ekansu and two other people i can't remember did a really funny ritual to try and rid the yellow bean bag of its bad energy where they just stood in a circle around it and like chanted and then turned around and all sat on it at the same time (laughs) cute it was really good um but you asked me if I was happy with the winners, yes, because I totally wasn't expecting that, actually. I thought it was, mm. uh, it made me have faith in the British public. Absolutely true. Actually. And not not even, it wasn't even like, like won by like a, a margin. They won with like 60% of the yeah. votes, which is kind of absurd, actually. That's yeah. ridiculous. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah, thank God. Because if like Tasha and Andrew had won... I'm. I would be more down for Tasha and Andrew than Gemma and Luca. Than Gemma and Luca. Yeah, I mean that situation. Luca needs to go to hell. Oh, Georgie. Well, I mean, do you have in, very strong feelings? I hate Luca. Okay, I mean he's, he's horrible. He's misogynist. He's not horrible. He's he just is. just. He's so mean to other other women. Like, I think he's really mean and really. Yeah, he really, is. A misog- really... I mean, there's a whole misogynistic undertone. This particularly season. toward Tasha, which I think yeah. is it's really unwatchable. It was sometimes. it was really horrible. I so definitely blatant. think the producers um stepped in and corrected Luca on that because that time when he was being really mean to her about something, I can't remember now. And then the next day he was like all like immediately so apologetic and it's like mm. you don't just change your tune that Especially quickly. him. Especially him, because he's a stubborn old brat. He is a brat, actually. He's so childish. I bet he's an only child. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, Other questions for you? Let me think. Yeah. As a seasoned Love Island professional, Georgie, you can... Listen, no one is too good for Love Island. And I'm saying that I, on air. That's not what I was implying. I, no, no, I don't mean that. I just mean to tell okay. our listeners that <laughs> no one is too good for it. Everyone who thinks it's trash can do one. Yeah. It tells you a lot about human emotion. It does. Well, I mean, obviously it's like incredibly staged and... But it's just, it's totally fascinating. I'm so... It is fascinating. And not in like a a voyeuristic, I mean, obviously in a voyeuristic way, but it's also just really endearing and kind of heartwarming to watch people like figure their shit out. Figure it out, yeah. I guess it's funny because I completely... Like when I'm watching it, even though I know so much of the show has been like steered in a certain direction. Mm. And I know that like the truth is, it's that these sort of contestants are playing a game, but also are being steered by producers. Mm-hmm. I still just like want to believe in it. And I don't, I just don't care. Like I, I completely also, buy into all of it. They, like, But they, they fall in love. You see it. You can't pretend. No, that's true. But I'm... Um, I mean, you can pretend, but you, you can't can. pretend in a, that convincing a way for an extremely long period of time. No, 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 you can't. Well, I mean, there's a part of me that thinks Gemma was not into that <laughs> the whole time. No, she was. You can I see know. it in her face. I think really? you can. Yeah. 
I think I just wanted her to not be. Into I don't it. think that when she gets out, she's still gonna feel like that. Or she is out. It will dawn on her how yeah. bad he is. Have you have you looked at their Instagrams lately? I was gonna do it to see where they're at. I have not. Okay. Well, sorry. No research, as we said. <laughs> I think they're still together. Let's have a look. Oh, we're looking live on air. Yeah. It's not live, but Gemma Owen. What are you up to? I bet. I bet. Luca's posting loads about Gemma and Gemma's not really posting about Luca. That's my prediction. But they have other people to post for them, don't they? I mean, during Love Island, yeah. But yeah. afterwards, like... She's got two million followers. Yeah, but she's fa- her dad's famous. And she had a swimwear brand before. And she's hot. And she's hot, yeah. She's also 19, which is disgusting. Terrifying. I mean, she's pretty mature for a 19-year-old. She is. I didn't like her for quite a long time, but she grew on me. I... She just doesn't take any shit, which I really appreciate. I appreciate that too. Luca Bish, how many followers have you got? <laughs> Fuck. 1.4, that's quite a lot. How? Why? I don't know. Sucks. Too many people that like a cheeky chappy, even Ugh. if he's a big misogynist. He's really just... Ugh, his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely veneers, right? Like 100%. Yeah. But they're still together is the summary i think so yeah i think i would know i like i think <laughs> I, I would know i think I would know. if they'd broken up i would <laughs> i would know i don't follow them but i'm twitter would the twitter universe ah uh, yeah true whereas i'm not on me. twitter so i don't know anything that's happening and then which is why i could watch it after it finished and i still didn't know who'd won no that's nice though yeah. i just find that the the experience of watching love island is only is like triply enhanced by being on on twitter as well because i just love the people who like commentate and i enjoy their hot takes yeah i just get it through you and though, their bad takes. which i like yeah but i do i it is really the enjoyment is so enhanced by talking about it oh yeah for sure and it can be i mean cultural phenomenon of it in the moment lots of episodes are very boring actually nothing really happens and i'm not like the tr- the the um trials are they called trials no the trial <laughs> i think it's because the- <laughs> what are they called the competitive no no the (laughs) the challenge challenges the challenges are so boring to me like i just don't care about them they're ridiculous yeah oh apart from i mean obviously i love i like the talent show oh the talent show is really good and then the the uh, that was actually the best when india was playing the recorder i just couldn't really control myself also tasha's cup yeah the cup what's it called the cup I don't know what that was. Song. I've never like seen that before. You, I have some deep memory of it, but really? I've never done it before. Yeah, never seen it in my life. Anyway, adorable. And what's your other favorite? My challenge? other favorite. Well, I don't really. It's not really a challenge. Is when they did the movie night, and then they have oh, to yeah. watch all these clips, which is actually just really mean because yeah. then they just watch clips of people saying stuff about them behind their back. But you know, they removed the worst one, which was I think they didn't. They did it last year, or maybe they removed it last year as well. And this one like caused so much. Oh, really? No, not this one. Sorry. The one that they removed, yeah. which is um, they would take tweets, real tweets from like the current season and then put them on a big screen and then blank out the names. There'll be tweets uh, that are about you know, oh my God. by people that are about different islanders and they have to guess who the tweet would like what name was oh blanked out. God. And obviously some of those tweets were like brutal. Yeah, that's and, horrible. Yeah. So they took that out, which... Uh, I would say is a good thing. I because I've watched, I've only I haven't watched all of the seasons. I've only watched like three, and I, even now I'm 
getting a bit like can you just shake up the format a bit because I guess because I'd never watched it before I actually didn't know what was going to happen when so by the time Castro Amor arrived I was like oh my god yeah what is happening Castro Amor really happened exciting. earlier this season mm. usually it happened later on which but I feel like it must be less successful later on because people also want to win and then they're not swayed so much by yeah, I think that's probably why they did it because yeah. it, it kind of creates more drama. But then obviously in the past it has still created drama and it's been late on. Yeah. But I do think it makes more sense that it happens earlier because I mean, the, more shit can Yeah, go I mean, this year it just proved that Andrew's a fucking idiot. Oh, well, it didn't actually prove he was an idiot. It's what everyone decided that he was. Oh, with the tit lick, yeah. licking. Yeah, okay, <laughs> the tit licking. I thought I was thinking of something else. Oh, I just licked her tit or whatever. It's Iconic. Like, can you Iconic. not? Yeah, that was really stupid also coco like i'm sorry yeah. they treated her so badly yeah but they yeah this, this is what happens with the casserole people they really do yeah. just get used coco's been doing some like instagram live tell all things i think or like i don't know going on some media yeah. platform and saying a lot of shit and i'm kind of intrigued to know well actually i don't really care <laughs> but i think it was quite uh controversial mm. like she was coming out and telling some truths oh, some really? home truths some other truths home truths about I don't know because I haven't listened, but some <laughs> <laughs> some home truths some home that truths will remain that unknown. Caused a stir, let's say. Oh yeah. Okay. Do you have any more questions for me? Okay. Are you a Damia stan? No. Okay. Just checking. I mean, I'm an India stan. Although yeah, exactly. Yeah. India is amazing. Dami just I really yeah. liked him at the beginning, and yeah. then I was like, I just hate the way he deflects everything with humor. He like cannot emotionally engage, and I find it really annoying yeah i mean he's like not a nice person actually I yeah think he's and at really... one point he actually said oh i'm just a man or mm -hmm. like something like that and i just after that i couldn't i think I, I honestly forget that these people are often like 23 years old they're so like strong and bulky and like <laughs> like muscular that i'm like oh they're older than me but they're literally <laughs> like 10 years 30 year olds <laughs> But they're literally like yeah. children. They're children. But he, he was cute. I did. I just like that he's a scientist and that he would make lots of, uh, use lots of scientific metaphors for things. I found him for at least half of the series extremely funny and endearing and just like he was definitely my favorite for yeah. a long time. But then he actually showed his true colors and I wasn't impressed. And he continued to show his true colors. Yeah. Till right till the end. Yeah unfortunately okay yeah. which couple do you think is going to last the longest ekinsu and davide yeah i hope so because they're the only so I, I do actually think tasha and andrew are kind of in love yeah i agree like they are i think yeah tasha and andrew might they and... had a really hard time in there can i just say that like i didn't really like either of them for most of the series but i never ever agreed with the way that they treated tasha it was so, no, it was I, really, also, like, I mean, I quite liked standards. her at the beginning. And then I just was like, why is everyone acting like so... she's some evil genius I who's, know. like, manipulating everyone? I'm like, she's I just know. sad. And, like, it had The, the double standards were, like, unreal. Oh, yeah. Because, obviously, the men would go and chat to all these other people. And then when Tasha had, like, a single conversation with a man. That were, like, very platonic really conversations. Platonic. Somehow she would get yeah, destroyed. I mean, it was very evident. But, yeah, so I think Tasha and Andrew could last... I can imagine them having like a very big um, OK magazine photo shoot for their wedding or something. Yes, yes. In too. like a year. But maybe also Ekinsu and Davide can imagine oh, them doing that as well. Yeah. But you know, you know that they've got a, they sign a deal 
I think. Oh my god, again, I'm sorry. I can do another day if I if I am lying or if I've got this wrong. I mean, no one cares, you can tell would you? me. Well, you know, I think they signed a deal. I don't want to get people excited. That's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, you don't want our forty fans who might or might not want Love Island to get really excited about Echo Zoo and Davide's potential maybe deal. Yeah, with um, ITV two, obviously. Mm. Um, I think like a travel show where they go <gasps> traveling to each of their own. Oh like they go to Italy and then they go to Turkey and like explore the country together, which I think is like the best would idea watch ever. That. <laughs> I think it's so good. Ekansu is got she's got star potential. She is gonna be like <laughs> I feel like she's gonna gonna present she's Big got Brother. The X Factor. She's got the X Factor. Like she might she I think she actually. should actually present the next Big Brother, which is coming out next year, by the way. They probably already have someone in mind. If it's not Davina, it has to be Ekansu. Yeah, oh Davina, so great. I know. So yeah. That's my prediction. Okay. And you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. I mean, I can't even remember who else is even in there. Uh, I think, I think, I do. Th- I hope that Gemma and Luca split because Gemma realizes you know, she comes to her senses. And an albatross around her neck. But I wonder if they'll, even if they do split, they will like pretend they're still together for a while just for like publicity. Yeah, yeah probably. Um, I just love that when Luca's parents came on. Oh my God, I know. That was the best. Oh my God, I love that. And then they left and his mum was like, when you all get out, you're coming to my house in Brighton for a pasta. And I was yeah. like, this is so random. I loved it when the parents came. Although I was so sad for Paige because they were saying- Oh yeah, her mum was mom... into it. Oh yeah, Paige and Adam. I really like Paige. I don't. I know you don't, but Mm-mm. I do. Uh-uh, don't trust her. I can't believe you don't trust her. She's nah. too cute. No, you. she's. I, I think she's fake. I think she's really no. fake. She is fake. She's not fake. She's just not really... Uh, I think she just doesn't know how to express negative emotion. I think she's fake. Okay. <laughs> the fact that she like did not hold Dami to account at all at any point and they were like, you know, especially after Casa and Moore, she was best friends with them straight away yeah. after what he did. And I'm like, come on. Yeah, but it's his job to deal with that shit rather than Of course her. it is, but I wouldn't expect anything from yeah. him. But from Paige, you, you would because you, she's supposedly a nice person. Oh, I guess so. So I just trusting. would love her to be my paramedic. Yeah. Come on. No. She's hot, but... That's not the only reason for sure. <laughs> I, don't, I won't I don't. deny it's part of the appeal. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not into it. Okay. Well, <laughs> we've been we... talking for quite a long time. Yeah, I think we should call it a day. Uh, I can't wait for Love Island 2023. Whoop, whoop. I'm actually really excited. I wish that they brought it back. Ooh. I wish that they um would do the winter one. When did they stop doing that? I don't know, a couple of years ago. Mm. They do it in South Africa, I think. Or somewhere far, far afield. Well. Anyway. So we're done with Love Island for this year. Let's wrap it up. Although after we finish recording, I'm immediately going to go on everyone's Instagram. Just yeah. to check. Me too, actually. I just want to know. We can do it together. Um... So that concludes the another episode. The another episode, episode three. If you're still here with us, please do us a favor and like, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Reviewing is very important. Yeah, we really need you to leave reviews. Please. Yeah. Only nice ones. <laughs> yeah. And for the next episode, we have not yet decided which book we're going to be talking about. We have a selection that we're currently deciding be- from. Yeah. And we're going to... We'll announce it on our Instagram we'll ask on our instagram and we will do it sooner than three months away maybe 
maybe um, no we definitely will oh we will yeah 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 so the usual thank yous to Aidan Wall for our jingle, Dana Casey for the gorgeous graphic design, Charlie Clemos for lending us equipment, and Biscuit the dog for being our very quiet supporting... Oh, she's asleep. She's so asleep. Our mascot. And you can stream episodes of Bear Fruits on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at bear underscore fruits underscore podcast. And if you want to get in touch, you can email us at bearfruitspodcast at gmail.com or DM us. We would love to hear from you. Yes, we really, really, really would. Yeah. So until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye.